Mm -hmm. My notes have disappeared. Why? I don't. Something's going on with the Google Doc, and everything's changing places. I think I, think, I blame <laughs> Polychronis because he's editing it, and it's just frozen on my computer, so I can't look at my notes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is going on? My word. Okay. Hello there, folks, and welcome back to the Europolex podcast. I am Ewan Healy, and with me is my co-host, friend, colleague, and all, all manner of talented man, Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing this week? I'm I'm doing well, thanks, Ewan. Uh, I'm all wrapped up in um, football fever, for sure. It's a good distraction from everything else. Oh, yes, absolutely. Europe has been taken by storm. It's so exciting. It is exciting. I'm sure most of our listeners are are following it closely, uh, too. I don't really know when this will be um, published. I'm not sure how, what, how much we can discuss what's actually going on. But obviously, I'm um, definitely rooting for um, Sweden and England to do well. Mainly England, because it's just so fun to be anywhere in England when the football team does well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I'm... I'm definitely planning on going down to England. Uh, if if England do well, I'm going to go down to England for some of the big games because the atmosphere is it's just electric when when England do well. But right now, I am, of course, Scotland all the way. Scotland played England last night as we record, dear reader, to a nil-nil draw. It was, oh, it was intense. Um, and I also have the Netherlands in my, in my work sweepstake. So I'm also cheering on the Oranje. Yeah, I, I got um, I got Sweden in my sweepstake at random, which uh, felt beautiful. But then I got Russia as well. So I have some vested interest in Russia doing well. Uh, although I don't, um, I don't think either will. Little tip for you Democratic fans out there, something I always do is if I don't know who to support in a game, I look up on the various democracy indexes, which of the two countries is a better democracy and support that one. Just if you want to integrate a little bit of political discourse. You won't often support Russia with that method. No, no, it's it's, it's good for the Scandinavian countries, for sure. <laughs> Shall we crack on? Yes. In this episode, we are joined by our Armenia correspondent, Yanis Arshakian. We sat down earlier this week and had an amazing chat about the upcoming snap parliamentary elections in Armenia and the last three years of tumultuous democratic and economic upheaval in the young nation. But first, a little message on how you can support us and our headlines across the continent. Europolex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we always want to do more. We've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and much more via our Patreon. Access all that from as little as just one euro per month. So don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. Now let's start with our headlines. There are a lot of them, which is obviously exciting. Uh, we're going to kick off in Switzerland, where on June 13th, Swiss people went to vote for a number of issues, from strengthening anti-terrorism law to COVID-19 measures. 
and the national referenda were related to uh, five matters in total. We outlined them in the last episode too, but the results are now in. The first issue was the drinking water initiative, and it was rejected by 60.7%, with most of the cantons voting no, except from Basel City, where the positive votes reached 58.8%. The initiative would ban subsidies to farmers who use pesticides. A similar resolution, which was rejected by 60.6% of the voters, called for a Switzerland without artificial pesticides. In case the referendum was approved, that would probably increase food imports into Switzerland, while the government, which was against the initiative, feared that the approval could cause decrease in agricultural output and a rise in food prices. Again, Basel City was the only canton saying yes, with 57.2% of the vote. Both initiatives were supported by the Green Party of Switzerland and were opposed by the Swiss government. The last rejected referenda was about the Federal Act on Greenhouse Gas Emissions. The act would increase environmental taxes in order to reduce carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases emissions, although most of the parties, except the Swiss People's Party, were supportive. Eventually, the act was rejected by 51.6% of the voters. So quite interesting, I guess, that even with the green wave they saw last year, when it comes to the issues, the Swiss people vote down the policies put forward by, by the Greens in these referenda. There were some that came out in favor. So the first one was about a controversial anti-terrorism law called Federal Act on Combating Terrorism, which passed with 56.6% of the votes. The act will tighten counter-terrorism measures and will give more powers to the government against suspected terrorists. Human rights organizations and other opponents of the law are skeptical, saying it undermines the rule of law, but eventually uh, they did not succeed in convincing people to, to vote against it. Finally, a referendum on the COVID-19 Act was approved by 60.2% of the votes. This legislation was supported by the Swiss government and activists against it say that they will continue to fight against authorities' decisions on the COVID-19 measures. So it's basically making some measures and some powers to put in COVID-19 measures uh, permanent in law. But yeah, that, that was passed by 60.2% of the electorate. Crossing Lake Constance to the north now, to Germany, Regional elections took place in Saxony on the 6th of June. In the Landtag, the region of Sachsen-Anhalt, the leader of the ruling centre-right CDU was able to fend off the threat of a win by the far-right alternative for Germany, gaining a surprising 37.1% of the vote and gaining 10 seats in the regional parliament. Now, AFD even experienced a small drop in their vote share at 20.8%, losing two seats. The far-right party does, however, remain the second-largest party in the Landtag. Also, as predicted by polls, Liberal FDP managed to re-enter the regional parliament after having failed to gain any seats in 2011 and also 2016. The party got 6.4% of the vote, gaining 1.6% since the last election and entering the parliament with seven seats. Both left-wing Die Linke and centre-left SPD had their worst results yet in Saxony, but retained their third and fourth place with 11 and 8.4% respectively. This gives Die Linke 12 seats and SPD 9. The Greens, which had been part of the governing coalition with the CDU and the SPD, were overtaken by the FDP and ended up in last place, but still managing to gain one seat. This result has boosted the CDU's prospects ahead of the federal election in September, disappointed the Greens, who were hoping for a further boost in their nationwide rise, and put a pause on the AFD's seemingly unstoppable rise in the East. On a regional level, the CDU, the SDP and the Greens seem eager to continue their partnerships in government, with the FDP also helping to join the ruling coalition, perhaps indicative of what we might be able to expect after the federal elections.
We're all gearing up for it. We're all gearing up for it. And now let's go to the UK, where the Liberal Democrats have just achieved a stunning by-election victory against Boris Johnson's governing Conservative Party. The by-election was held in Chesham and Amersham constituency in the south of England, caused by the death of the incumbent MP. The seat had been safely held by the Conservatives since its creation in 1974, and the area has been strongly Conservative since the beginning of modern democracy. In the last election, the Conservatives easily held off a challenge from the Liberal Democrats, winning 55% against their 26%. This was, by all counts, a very safe Conservative seat. And yet, the by-election saw Liberal Democrat candidate Sarah Green secure an astonishing 25-point swing against the Conservatives, winning an outright majority of the vote with 57% against the Conservatives, 36%. This brings the Liberal Democrat parliamentary delegation up to just 12 Several explanations have been suggested for this result, which will surely be poured over by both parties and the media, and especially incumbent Conservative MPs in nearby Southern constituencies, obviously thinking about whether this might be um, a bigger trend. This could simply be a normal midterm protest vote against the incumbent government, although it should be noted that this was not the case in the recent um, Harlepool by-election in the north of England, which saw the Conservatives gain the seat from centre-left Labour, suggesting, if this is the case, that the Liberal Democrats have a greater protest appeal than Labour in the South. It could be evidence of a continued realignment along the Brexit divide as well, as Chesham and Amersham voted 55% against leaving the European Union. This could be evidence that the Liberal Democrats' local electoral machine can still be formidable, it's what they're known for in parts of the country. Or finally, it might just be local factors tied to this specific time, such as the opposition to high-speed rail plans in the constituency, and that those issues became more important than national politics um, at this at this time. That said, the by-election was undeniably a stunning result that will make conservatives in the south of England very, very nervous. But there's only so much we can learn, obviously, from a single result and by-elections like this. Whether this points towards a more significant revival of the Liberal Democrats obviously remains to be seen. There's most likely a long time until, until the next um, national elections where that will become more clear. Also noteworthy is the Labour candidate's result in the by-election. Natasa Pantelic came fourth place with only 622 votes, which is 1.6% of the total, making it the lowest result Labour has gotten ever in a by-election. Of course, this sounds worrisome for Labour, but this may, however, be you know, a byproduct of the first-past-the-post electoral system, where, especially in a by-election, strategic voting can produce such results, and clearly... For a Lib Dem swing of this magnitude to take place, it will be costly for other parties in opposition to to the government. So there's a lot to suggest that a lot of Labour voters obviously voted strategically for the Liberal Democrat candidate in this instance. But if you're looking for a by-election to judge Labour by, the upcoming battling and spend by-election would probably be more consequential. The late Joe Cox's district has been a Labour seat since 1997, and it should be a relatively safe seat for the party. A surveillance poll does, however, put the Conservatives ahead, so it should be interesting to see what will happen and how it will affect the national political scene yet again. So it might go from a Conservative defeat at this point to another victory for them. So yeah, a lot of uh, sort of trickling in of by-election results uh, in the UK and a lot of uh, 
reading into what the results mean even <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean what else can we do but read into these by-election results but i do think that the battle and spend by-election when it comes up in uh just a few weeks will be a really big test for the sort of new it's hard to say new labor leader anymore because he's been around for well over a year now but that's being seen as the watershed moment for him and he could face a leadership challenge if he doesn't hold on to the Batley and Spen constituency. Now, across the other side of the Irish Sea, there has been continued political drama in Northern Ireland. I mean, when isn't there? But Edwin Poots, the newly elected leader of the right-wing Democratic Unionist Party, or the DUP, which strongly supports Northern Ireland's union with Britain, has announced his resignation after just 21 days in the position. This comes after he agreed a deal with the left-wing party Sinn Féin, who support reunification with Ireland to re-establish the mandatory power-sharing coalition between the parties in Northern Ireland. This included a compromise which would ensure legislation protecting the status of the Irish language, as well as the dialect Ulster Scots, would come into the force before the end of 2022, a policy heavily opposed by much of the DUP grassroots party. This is not just an issue about the Irish language, however, and reflects a growing sense of crisis within Northern Ireland's unionist community, that is, those who support membership of the United Kingdom. The Northern Ireland Protocol, agreed between the UK and the European Union, placed a regulatory border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK at the beginning of this year and has been fiercely opposed by Northern Irish unionists. This issue partially contributed to rioting in Belfast during the spring, some of the worst since the end of the Troubles Civil War. The serious return of Irish reunification to the political agenda, triggered in part by Brexit, further strengthens these fears, as does the slower demographic trend, which could see unionist community losing its population demographic majority in Northern Ireland. These factors have facilitated a surge in support for the traditional unionist voice party, a party further to the DUP's right, which opposes the Good Friday Agreement that established Northern Ireland's power-sharing institutions. These latest events suggest the crisis in Northern Irish unionism has spread to the DUP's very political leadership and isn't going anywhere soon. Depending on who is chosen to replace Poots, this is a real risk that the main parties will fail to reach a government agreement in time and the devolved administration will be forced to collapse and once again returning to an election. In the context of growing unrest and recent rioting, there are also concerns about the impact of this political instability on the peace process. So it's lots to watch there, um, particularly in terms of um, peace and uh, civil rights in Northern Ireland, but also what could happen in one of Europe's most demographically diverse and perhaps religiously contentious areas. Definitely. So going back to electoral news, another election that took place since our last recording was the parliamentary by-elections in France, specifically the second round for the four by-elections we had mentioned before in the podcast I spoke to our France correspondent, uh, Adele, about it in the last episode. So I recommend you go back and listen to that for more detail. But in summary, in terms of the results, the favourites ended up winning in all of them, which we correctly predicted, with Metadier of the Liberal Union des Démocrates et Indépendants reaching 68.6% in the third district of Andre-Loire, Brigitte Bourguignon of the Liberal La République en Marche reaching 62% in the sixth district of Pas-de-Calais, Albert Dassault of the centre-right Les Républicains reaching 80% in the first district of Vouaz, and El Arache of the centre-left Parti Socialiste reaching 56.6% in the 15th district of Paris. Again, for more info on these elections, plus obviously the upcoming 
plethora of regional parliamentary elections that might be more interesting than these by-elections, to be honest, uh, on June 20th. Check out our last episode where Adele Stebach gave a great summary and great opinion on what to pay attention to um, in terms of French electoral politics this summer. After that smooth transition from past elections to upcoming ones, we have to mention that Armenians will be heading to the polls on Sunday, July 20th. The snap elections were called after months of political instability following the country's defeat in the second Nagorno-Karabakh war, with Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan and the military being at odds and a series of anti-government protests taking place. For more info on this upcoming snap election, stick around till the end of the episode where Ewan's discussion with our Armenia correspondent and podcast contributor, Yanis Arshakyan, will be able to inform you more about what to look out for in the July 20th election. Absolutely. And now switching over to an indirect election. The outgoing Albanian parliament dismissed President Ilya Meta for some serious violations of the constitution. 104 out of 140 MPs voted for his dismissal, accepting a report by the Commission of Inquiry that the former leader of the centre-left LSI violated 16 articles of the constitution. Only seven MPs voted against, while three abstained. The Constitutional Court will have the final say, as under the Constitution, it has to approve or reject the impeachment within three months. If it is accepted, then the Parliamentary Speaker will replace Meta until a new president is elected. In other news, Italian MEP Lucia Buolo has announced that she will be leaving the right-wing Lega and no longer sit with the ID Identity and Democracy Group, but will instead sit with the non-inscripts. However, Volo may join Berlusconi's Forza Italia, which would bring her into the warm, accepting embrace of the European People's Party, which is still looking to fill the conservative hole in its heart after Fidesz walked away a few weeks ago. Meanwhile, which is perhaps only interesting to those of us at Europolex, but we're going to talk about it anyway, is that the governing Ukrainian party, Servants of the People, led by President Volodymyr Zelensky, has decided not to join the Liberal Alba party after all, as it had previously expressed to Europolex. Now, this is all based on Europolex sources, but if the move went forward, Ukraine's ruling party would have been allied with the Renew Group, where ALDA MEPs sit. Instead, however, here at Europolex, we will now be continuing to label the party through the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, where its members sit affiliated with Liberal Renew Europe, centre-left S&D, centre-right EPP, and the National Conservative ECR. They are one of those rainbow-flagged bars on our bar charts that you will recognise, perhaps marginally appropriate for Pride Month. Before we move on to polling news, we have to mention the political drama unfolding in Sweden as we speak. So on Monday, the 21st of June, the Swedish parliament will convene for a vote of no confidence in the centre-left Prime Minister Stefan Löfven, officially demanded by the Sweden Democrats this past Thursday on June 17th. This is all very complicated, but comes after the left party said it would vote with the right-wing opposition if such a vote of no confidence were to be held, unless the government backtracked on plans to scrap rent controls for newly built apartments. Luvian has been leaving a minority coalition government with the Green Party since 2014, with direct support from the Liberal Centre Party and Liberal Party since 2019, following lengthy negotiations leading to the breakup of Sweden's centre-right alliance. The two Liberal parties agreed to this on the basis of a long list of agreed policy proposals, the January Agreement, 
one of which were scrapped rent controls for parts of the housing market. The left party was explicitly left out of the negotiations that led to the January agreement, but the Libyan government has still relied on its tacit support in order to govern. The party, led by Nushi Dagostar, is now flexing its parliamentary muscles, and with both the moderates and Christian Democrats saying they will vote for the no-confidence motion, much is pointed to the government having to either call for snap elections or resign and launch a new government formation process with the current parliament makeup after the vote on the 21st of June. A new government formation process would most likely lead to a reformed Libyan cabinet. This is all unless something happens over the weekend that leads to the left party backtracking on its threat to vote against the government. Sweden's next regular parliamentary election is scheduled for September 2022 and will take place as planned, even if a snap election ends up going ahead later this year. And now, listener, it's time for polling highlights. Yes, it's been a fascinating two weeks with some great polling highlights to be discussed. And we start where we always go at some point in the polling news, and that is to Italy, where Fratelli d'Italia have another record high. They can't stop. The National Conservative Party reached 20.5% in the latest Ipsos poll, with the centre-left PD polling first and right-wing Liga falling to third place. Now, regarding PD's and Lega's place, the poll might be an outlier, but Fratelli d'Italia's rise is depicted across polls, and we are deeply unsurprised that they've hit that big one-fifth of Italian voters. For another record high, we go to Moldova, where the Liberal pass reached 50.5% in the latest Watchdog and CBS AXA poll. This record high might be an outlier um, as well, but the Maya Sandu-affiliated party is expected to come first in the snap parliamentary elections on July 11th, with the newly formed electoral bloc of Communists and Socialists, or BECS, being their biggest competitor. BECS is, as we discussed a couple of episodes back, a left-wing alliance between the former president's Igor Dodon's party of socialists and Vladimir Voronin's party of communists. Every time I hear BCS, I can't help but think of the K-pop band, BTS, um, which would, would bring a very different twist to Moldovan politics, I'll be honest with you. Though I'm, I'm perhaps interested in a, in a Soviet legacy K-pop band. I'm interested. Ahead of another snap parliamentary election is the one in Armenia, of course. We have both record highs and lows, with HD, the alliance of centre-left HYD and conservative VH, reaching 33% in the latest MPG poll. Meanwhile, in the same poll, the centrist alliance, IKD, reached 33% as well. But that would still be a record low for Nikol Pashinyan's ruling alliance. We unpack a little bit of that later on uh, in the podcast about how the My Step Alliance with Civil Contract have collapsed from 70% of the vote back in 2018 down to the 33% they're on now. Now to Estonia, where the right-wing ECRE party reached an all-time record high with 25.5% in the latest Norstat poll. This isn't the first time we mention a record high for them, as the party has been rising in the polls recently, especially after leaving the government back in January. You'll remember those chaotic months where Estonia went through a government um, crisis. Last but definitely not least, we have a lot of polling highlights from the Netherlands, as ever. As ever. That's what happens when you have so many parties. There's lots to talk about. Starting with the Eurofederalist Volt, reaching a record high of 4.4% in the latest INO research poll, which would mean doubling their seats from three to six. I reckon that's because they came on the podcast and spoke to us. Um, it's all the listeners in the Netherlands. 
have who've heard about them for the first time and so are changing their voting intentions so if you're listening and you're a member of another small party contact me and come on the podcast it'll change your electoral outcomes forever now Another party that seems to be on the rise is the agrarian BBB that reaches four seats in the latest pile seat projection, having just one seat in the election earlier this year. Now, you'll remember that we discussed BBB taking support from across the whole country instead of just small regions, which helps it in their national system. Finally, in the same poll, the centre-right CDA fell to a record low with eight seats from 15 in the last election. This comes after MP Peter Omzik's departure from the party, with some scenario polls putting a potential Omzik's-led party at around 18% in second place. Interesting times in the Netherlands, of course, hopefully with the government formation at some point soon, as it's been three months since the election. Gosh, time flies when you don't have a government, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's not much, though, for, for Benelux countries. That's true. That's true. We might be here a year from now and still saying, oh... Waiting for the government formation in the Netherlands. Whereas in Sweden, where I'm from, we're still going through the trauma of having three, four months of negotiations. We've never had that long in the UK for a government formation. I don't think ever. It usually lasts a week at most if there's a hung parliament, but that never happens because first past the post does its thing. Lovely and efficient. That's the that's the name of the game with first past the post. <sighs> Mm, yeah one of the few benefits i guess so in our final story for this episode we should mention that the newest europelex european parliamentary projection has been published highlight of the month for all of us here at europelex in this month's projection we see the gap between the center-right european people's party and the center-left progressive alliance of socialists and democrats narrowing while the epp would remain the biggest group in the eu's transnational assembly it could lose a projected three seats compared to the previous month's estimates inversely snd gains two projected seats despite their uh, major hit that they saw last month in the third spot we have the liberal centrist renew europe which is one seat less albeit keeping a stable majority for President Ursula von der Leyen's European Commission coalition, composed of the three above-mentioned political factions. For further details on the results brought by our team and the fight for fourth place between the right-wing ID and the Greens, check out the full report on our website. That's all for our headlines and polling highlights this week, as if you haven't had enough already. Stick around for in-depth discussion about the upcoming Armenian SNAP elections and what it means to be Armenian in 2021. Maybe that's putting it a bit too heavy, but it's a great interview nonetheless. Stick around. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. Folks, this week I am very excited to be sitting down with Europolex's Armenian correspondent, Yanis Arshakian, who's going to be talking to us about the upcoming SNAP parliamentary elections and all of the sort of political context that's been going on in, in Armenia, out on Europe's eastern frontier. Yanis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me here. I hope we will have a good conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. So 
it's hard when talking about Armenia to not go back to uh, the events of power struggles and protests three years ago. And during those, the incumbent prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan, was sort of thrust to power in a tidal wave. Can you tell us some more about the Velvet Revolution? Well, the last time when Armenians went to the polls, the calendar was showing on December 2018. And the atmosphere in the whole country was completely different from the feelings and the atmosphere right now. The main reason of the difference was that the country was completely shaped from some great protests happening during that time, which was led by Nicole Pashinyan, who was the leader of the political party called Civil Contract. It was a political party started like an NGO. and. It was a completely different political party from all the others in Armenia because it was a party close to the West, the European Union, was looking uh, to make close sides with those countries and was one of the parties that was feeling that Armenia should step away from Russia's backyard and should leave the Eurasian Union. All this brought Pashinyan in front of the politics when he started marching in all Armenia, gathering people and calling them to come to come in the, in the capital city of Yerevan and protest against the regime of Serk Sarkshan. And the protesters were the protests were victorious. Sarkshan resigned, and then Pashinyan became. Prime Minister of Armenia. Can you talk us a little bit through about what the last three years have been like for him and what direction he's taken Armenia in? In the last three years, Armenia was going better and better. And that was something that they were kind of flexing for. Pashinyan was flexing that. He was searching for the free press in Armenia that was going great and better and better. He was searching that negotiations with Azerbaijan were going very well. And he was feeling that Azerbaijan could do the same thing that happened in Armenia. That he was waiting for a velvet, velvet revolution in Azerbaijan, which eventually didn't happen. Well, and we come to 2020, where some things didn't happen as Pashinyan promised. The first thing, and it's not the war, it's COVID-19. The first thing with COVID is that COVID brought a great disaster in Armenia. Until October 2020, Armenia was the most brutally heated country in the Caucasus region. Around 7% of the population was hit by COVID-19 in Armenia. The pandemic brought great disaster in Armenia's economy and the war came in. So can you just give us a little bit more, specifically talking about the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict last year, What's the political consequences of that? Well, the wars lasted about one and a half months. Pashinyan was promising that Armenia will win the war. Every day on the TV was playing a slogan, which was saying, which means in, uh, in English, we will win. Well, what, what did Pashinyan do all that time during the, during the war? He started looking for alliances. He went to the West, he went to the US, he went to Russia. We have to say that in US and, and Russia and France, there are many Armenians, the great, some great diaspora, 
uh, is living in these countries. And he was thinking that this diaspora could help Armenia because Armenia was, uh, a, a, was a better and democratic country and more Western country. And he was feeling that the, the world would be helpful to Armenia and will not help Azerbaijan, which didn't, didn't happen eventually. He tried to stay away from Russia in the beginning, believing that he would get some help from the West. But that time, the West was in completely other things. First of all, we had the Trump administration in US. We had the elections happening in the US. So the US couldn't completely go and help Armenia. And Trump was uh, a friend for, with Turkey. And Turkey was an ally with Azerbaijan. And all this stuff was happening. The second thing was that Europe didn't really want to get in Caucasus region and have a conflict with Russia. They wanted to be, be away from that thing. So Armenia didn't, didn't get the support that they waited. Armenia went to Russia and Russia was the, the country that promised that, we, that they will support and end the war. What happened? Russia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia signed a trilateral uh, resolution where they, the resolution was about the defeat of Armenia. Pashinyan didn't admit that they lost. He said that we, have, we will lose when we say that we have lost. So this thing, which meant the defeat of Armenia, brought more than half of Nagorno-Karabakh region back to Azerbaijan and gave some, some advantages to Azerbaijan. One of the greatest thing, things signed in the, the resolution were about the road that would pass Armenia and that would connect Turkey with Azerbaijan for the first time. We have to note some things about the war before we keep going. The first one is that the war wasn't happening in Armenia. Nagorno-Karabakh is a nation that is self-recognized called the Republic of Artsakh, which Artsakh is the Nagorno-Karabakh called by Armenians. And the self-recognized Republic didn't sign this uh, this resolution. We should say that Armenia signed a defeat that never happened in its country. So that's that's an important thing. And the most important thing is that you sign a resolution for a defeat in a war that is not happening in your country. And then there is a part that says that a road will be built in your country. So all that started bringing in Armenia some, some protesting, some mobs going out to the, the the road and starting to uh, protesting against Pashinyan. Yeah, that's really interesting. The 
sort of international complexities of, of all of the international relationships, particularly the Turkish relationship. And of course, we saw the Turkish president visiting Nagorno-Karabakh very recently. You know, this is, this is a lot of tensions going on in this region. And, and, and I mean, we've seen the knockoff effects of that within Armenia. You know, I was just looking up as you were talking there, some of the polling data, and we've seen just a collapse for Pashinyan's party over the last uh, three years. You know, this is this is a real collapse. You can see that Pashinyan's support has been completely eroded, uh, you know, particularly at this point in this conflict, which of course has been going on for the best part of 30 years. Within the country, as you've said, the, the COVID and you've said the building of this road are huge, you know, there's have huge impact on people's opinions, there's huge social strife going on. What are the other movements doing politically? What are the big political um, challenges to Pashinyan? First of all, we have to add this. Pashinyan lost the war. But for a loser, for a, for a governor who loses a war, the, it wasn't a great destruction. Sometimes when you lose a war in countries like that, a coup attempt from the military or a murder attempt is something that happens all the time. But it didn't happen. What does that show? That many people believe that Pashinyan was the right person and the and Pashinyan wasn't the one who betrayed Armenia. That's the first thing to see. And there's another gap happening, a political gap in Armenia. All the opposition is saying that Pashinyan has betrayed Armenia, has given uh, some, some parts of Armenia, talking about Nagorno-Karabakh, but they don't have some other proposal. All of them agree that Armenia must not go to war again. They, they don't say that we have to, and when we come in power, we will go again to war and take back all this land that belongs to us and all this stuff. They admit that from now on, Armenia should solve this stuff diplomatically with political measures and not through war. There's one complete difference. Arme as, uh, Pashinyan is not Russia-friendly person. He, he, he wanted from the beginning to keep close ties with Europe, even if, even if he was saying that he wanted to keep close ties with both Europe and West and Russia, that is completely unrealistic and utopic in the era we are living. And the, the opposition, led by Kocharyan, who's, who is the second one coming in, in the last poll, he was coming first, is a veteran, a political veteran in Armenia. He was the second, the second president of Armenia. He was leading the country until 2008. And, and he was a, a truly Russia-friendly person. To, to, to make you understand how Russia-friendly he was, when the war started, Kocharyan asked from Pashinyan to go by himself to Russia and speak with Putin directly for, the, for all this thing happening. And Kocharyan was not a politician at that time. He was just a citizen. Pashinyan said, okay, you can go, but that's, that's not a formal visit of Armenia politician going in country. And he eventually didn't go because he felt ill and he had COVID-19. So he never left Armenia. 
So we understand that Kocharyan had a close side with Russia. So that's the reason, that's, he, that's what he promises now, that if I come to power, I will build close side with Russia again, and that will eventually promise some stability in the Caucasian region and Armenia. Because you, when you are a friend in, with Russia in the Russian backyard, then you then there's some stability. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. And I think the the Russian influence through this whole period is without a doubt one of the most important international narratives here. And I think we saw Europe, and this was the narrative you know, at the time during the Karabakh war last year, is we saw Europe and we saw the US sort of with their hands, you know, with their hands up, backing away a little bit from the conflict, wanting to basically let the the Caucasus be self-determinate in this aspect. And what we saw through that was uh, Europe not being involved. We saw between Turkey and between um, Israel, and we saw Russia a power struggle in the region, which Russia was able to promote itself and become the self-appointed peacekeeper, the arbiter of these talks, and now perhaps even the beneficiary of this whole period as it looks like sort of Russian-oriented oligarch-style politicians, which supposedly were removed three years ago, having a, a renewed essence and a renewed energy within the political culture of Armenia. They had some crisis all these three, four years with Pashinyan, and now is the best time for them to come back in politics. We have to note something about Turkey and Azerbaijan. These two countries are, are really... are great allies. They say that we are one nation, two countries. All this stuff happened because Turkey wanted to expand its, its observation and its power in the Caucasian region. But the greatest victorious person in the, in the war wasn't Turkey and wasn't Azerbaijan, was Russia. Because Russia went and put its boot in Nagorno-Karabakh, they were the, the his troops, Russia's troops, promised that, we, that that they will bring some stability in the region. They were the great victorious in this whole war going on. So about Armenia, in Armenia there there is a revenge coming. They they feel that they will go go back to power. They will take back they all the officers and this corrupt or not corrupt. It is not our business happening in Armenia will come back again. But we have to understand that time and history can't go back. The status quo of Armenia has changed. From the moment that Pashinyan came to power, many little political, many political alliances, political powers came to the surface. People started making new political parties Western political parties, human rights political parties, many, many things started changing in Armenian political and social system. That means that if even if Kocharyan win, he will have a great opposition power from Pashinyan, who will be the second one? That, that didn't happen in Armenia all these years. And even snap election didn't even, ha even ever happen in Armenia. There are two snap elections happening in, have happened in Armenia. The first one was when Pashinyan came into power, and this is the second one. And all this time, the most of all the political alliances and political powers that were coming in power had some percentages 
like 70%, 80%, 60%. For the first time, we will have political, a political parliamentary system where we will have 30%, 22%, 7%. All this brings some, some voices into parliament and into politics that can't go back. Yeah, that is absolutely the most important thing to know is that the whole political landscape has been changed over the last three years. And it's really easy as observers to say, oh, look, it's all unraveling. It's all going away. All the oligarchs are coming back. But actually, it's much more nuanced than that. There's opposition. There is popular dissent. There is electoral legitimacy taking place in Armenia. And I think that is what is absolutely fascinating about this election. And we, of course, at EuropeLex will be covering all of this. Keep an eye on our social media feeds. All of it is going to be there. Yanis is going to be leading all of this. It's going to be really, really interesting. Yanis, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. This has been fascinating. And we look on and, and hope for the best for Armenia. And but whatever happens, I think, as observers, as, as political scientists, we're going to really find really interesting what's coming up in Armenia. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe. And of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, and YouTube. We're spreading across as many platforms as we can. Uh, you can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media, except Instagram, where we're at at Europe underscore Lex. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast, hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and my colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronis Karampalas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kokoris, Guillaume Ferreira de Senda, and Yanis Arshakian. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do is possible because of our patrons on Patreon. Mm, I don't think any of these are actually going to be that helpful, but good luck. <laughs>